APIs within a company change all the time. Every service owner has an API to manage, and those APIs have upstream and downstream connections. APIs need to be tested for integration points, as well as for their contract, which is the agreement between an API owner and the consumers of that API. Aidan Kunif is the founder of Optic, a product built for API change management. He joins the show to explain why there is an opportunity for such a product and the market dynamics of the space of API testing and change management. Aiden Kniff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here. We're talking today about API change management. Can you describe the problems that you see around API change management? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we have to look at it kind of in the broader trend of where technology has moved over the last couple of years. Big companies who used to have monoliths and maybe a couple of individual APIs now find themselves with uh, dozens or, or sometimes even hundreds of interdependent services. So we've made one thing easier by splitting everything into smaller services, which is development and deployment. But that comes along with a coordination cost, where now a lot of every developer's day is trying to understand the impacts of the changes they're making on the consumers of these APIs. And as we know, like this leads to real-time breaks. You know, In some companies, it happens several times a week where someone will change an API they won't understand that another team is consuming that API and it'll cause a break, which you know either causes a bug, which isn't good. Sometimes it can cause a security issue. A lot of security issues have API problems behind them, or it just blocks another team for several days. And if you have dozens of people working, that's a lot of money. Are we talking about internally facing APIs or like externally facing APIs like Twilio or Stripe? So I think that's an interesting question. And when you look at how the environment has evolved over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of focus on external APIs and there's huge teams. Like there's teams that are oriented around making external APIs, you know, really high quality, making sure that they're not breaking consumers, helping migrate. But then the internal APIs, you know, the 10 internal APIs for every one external API, it's sort of like the Wild West. It doesn't get the same amount of love or attention to make sure that these contracts between the teams are being met. So APIs, whether externally or internally facing, they get updated on a regular basis. What is the workflow for updating an API? So that's sort of the, the golden question. And I think today it's, it's really handled differently in every company. I'd say there's sort of three approaches that we've seen in the Fortune 500. The first is like, only relevant to two companies. It's like Google and Facebook. Like in, in Google, the, the classic story is if you make an API change in the mono repo, they have tooling that'll tell you which consumers use that, who you've broken, and the onus is on you, the person who made the change, to update other people's code bases. So that works really well if you're Google and you've invested you know, huge amounts of time into building good tooling. But for all the other companies, it sort of comes down to two things. A lot of companies have told us that they just never make changes to their APIs. So they you know, add only, which leads to cruft and sort of a growth of all these sort of unneeded fields as the requirements change. 
or they just sort of bite the bullet and they know that as they change things, they're going to affect other teams. Some people try to build process around getting changes approved, around talking to consumers, around writing consumer-driven contract tests. But there's really not a good workflow today that is easy for teams to follow to prevent these breaking changes or even to tell them who is going to be affected by a change that they make. Isn't there some kind of continuous integration flow or API testing that we can do in order to make this safer? There definitely are ways of mitigating the challenges, but they come with such a high human cost. And I think that's really where the opportunity for better tooling in this space comes from. If you write a contract test for your API, you have to test pretty much every field all the polymorphism, all the response types you can get. It's really hard to mock these things. So we were working with a company a few weeks ago that came to start using Optic mainly because they have this huge infrastructure around simulating their APIs and mocking them. So they can do these sorts of tests and that becomes a whole project in and of itself. So I think there are ways to do this, but there's high human cost around maintaining those test suites. And over time, teams just over and over again have not been willing to make those investments to keep their software stable, especially for the internal APIs that don't really get the same kind of love that the external APIs get. What is needed around API testing? If I want to build really good API testing, what does that look like? There's a lot of different philosophies around it. There's sort of the consumer-driven contract testing model where you try to basically write tests from the point of view of the person consuming your API. But that requires you to know who's using your API and how. And a lot of teams don't have that kind of observability. The best approach that I've heard is what Azure is doing. And we actually adopted a lot of their principles that we heard them share at, I believe it was API World last year, into how Optic does open API testing. So essentially what they realize is you know, running test suites against all those APIs in, in something the size of Azure is not just really hard to do, but it also is really expensive because you're turning on and off physical servers, you know, VPNs are being created and destroyed. So what they realized they could do is instead of trying to guess all these usage patterns and test those, they just started writing API contracts with OpenAPI. They deployed their APIs normally and they monitored those APIs to see how they actually behaved in the real world. And when they saw issues with that, they reported it and they were able to catch these issues based on real traffic. And I think that sort of flipping the script and using real traffic as your API test is a really interesting insight because by nature, it will always map to the current use cases that the consumers have. Could you explain the term contract testing and what that has to do with APIs? Yeah. So when you call an API, you send it some data, you know, post data, and you get something back from the API. The shape of those responses, like which fields are there, what the data types of those fields are, all of that is part of the contract of the API. It's sort of the predefined expectations that both the consumer and the producer have agreed upon so that the API is able to behave in a consistent way over and over again. And API change management is really about making sure that when the producer is going to change the contract in some way, that the consumers are not adversely affected. Is there anything wrong with just testing an API on live traffic? 
So there's certainly costs to doing it. You know, you have to actually look at every single request coming through or be careful about how you're sampling so you don't introduce bias. But generally, you know, I think when you look at how people are thinking about testing today, like we, we really think chaos engineering and understanding kind of the baseline, what we expect our APIs to do, and then being able to diff the actual behavior against our expectation is much more attached to the real world than manually writing tests and not necessarily covering all of the cases. So I think it has a lot of advantages. The downside is really just that you need to be able to monitor this traffic securely and you need to be able to monitor it at scale because unlike tests which you just run you know, one time, traffic monitoring scales with your application. So you have all of these other issues where you have to now scale your monitoring as well. What is needed around API documentation? Yeah, so this is, this is basically what we started the open source project around. There's been standards for many, many years around documenting APIs in a machine-readable and human-readable way. The most popular and sort of industry standard way to do that is using OpenAPI. But the challenge that a lot of developers and a lot of companies have found themselves in is that Well, you know this, developers don't like writing documentation. And if you build a format with sort of an expectation that a human is gonna be on the other end updating the documentation and basically being that changelog tool themselves, what you start to see is doc drift where, you know, it's Friday at 4 p.m. and someone changed the API, but they don't update the open API spec. And now you have a deviation where your specification no longer matches the actual behavior of your application. And everything that's sort of been built right now, I think, relies too heavily on the human element of doing the versioning manually. We'll talk about Optic in a little more detail in in a moment, but we did a show recently about Postman. What problems does, does the company Postman solve around API management? Yeah, I don't work for Postman and I'm not up on sort of their latest messaging, but I know Postman started as a REST client and I think it's the most popular, you know, developer tool in the world now. I mean, I think almost everyone has Postman downloaded and has used it at some time to debug an API. What's interesting is, you know, the collection format is basically a way that you can send requests to your API and that's helpful when you're building it and debugging it and testing it but it's not really tightly integrated with the contract for the API. So just saying, here's an example request that will run and execute doesn't tell you all the information about how the API is actually supposed to behave. That comes from you know, a tight specification that says this field can be you know, one of these three options, whereas if you just send an example request, that's only ever going to be one of the options. So you don't see sort of the full range of affordances with a Postman collection. Tell me about other API tooling companies as you see as influential in the modern stack before we get to Optic. Yeah, so I think obviously, you know, SmartBear is is where Swagger, which has become OpenAPI, came from. Their lineage was really as an API testing tool. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of the tooling around APIs has definitely come out of the testing space. MuleSoft is another one. They had a have a rival spec for APIs called RAML, and they have a lot of new API tooling they've been working on to basically be a full lifecycle management tool. 
then the other I'd say is Kong. You know, they recently acquired Insomnia. They now have their own spec editor built in there and some tooling that's similar to Postman. And I've made a lot of investments in sort of getting that to be an end-to-end experience for users who can use Insomnia and then deploy in Kong and get some validation that their APIs are actually working as expected. Okay, we can get to Optic now. You work on a company called Optic. What is Optic? So Optic is sort of like Git, but it's for APIs and their contracts. So essentially the workflow is you start your API locally when you're developing it with Optic. So instead of like, you know, running node server, you run API start. And whenever you're sending traffic to that API when you're developing it, Optic is constantly diffing that traffic against your spec. So if it sees a new field that wasn't there before, it tells you, hey, we saw this change in behavior. Would you like to mark this as a bug or would you like to approve it and add this to your specification? And if you hit approve, it'll actually go update the API spec for you. And the advantage to this is that it's basically built into the developer's workflow and doesn't require them to actually write any documentation. It simply notifies them when it sees changes and then helps them make that change. So it's a much more developer-friendly workflow that sort of doesn't leave room for, for mistakes or omissions. What problems does it solve to have Optic in your workflow? So a lot of the time, these problems like API testing get a lot easier when you have a clear idea of how your APIs actually work and confidence that these specifications for how your API behaves actually match reality, actually are what the API is doing. So putting Optic in the workflow of the developer and also in your live environments, which is something we're we're piloting with some users now, really just gives you two things. It gives you a really drop-dead simple way for developers to provide documentation to their consumers internally and externally that's accurate and always up-to-date. And it gives you confidence that all of these APIs are working the way they're supposed to and alerts whenever behavior starts to deviate. So if it sees that you've changed the API in a way that's going to break another team, you find out from Optic, you don't find out from that other team when they're angry at you. What was your inspiration for starting Optic? So it's interesting. I've been working on DevTools for a while. And one of the things that I was really fascinated by is this idea of having a developer tool that could interoperate with your code. So instead of being something that is sort of outside the code, like what if it works with existing legacy that's already there? So I built this tool that was sort of like Clippy. This is what we went through YC with. There's a tool that was kind of like Clippy that could read your code base and it would light up when it saw code it recognized and say, hey, this is an API endpoint. Here's what we think it does. And then if you were in, you know, if that was in Python, you could then be in Node and it would say, hey, here's a form. It looks like you want this to connect to that API and it would, you know, do the coding for you. And what was really interesting is we had that and, and maybe 10 other interesting use cases around how this sort of two-way code generator could be used. And after we did our launch Hacker News, it became really clear that the the main problem people were interested in using the tool for was syncing their APIs and their consumers across all of their code bases. And when we saw that, I was I was actually kind of confused by it. I didn't understand like that this wasn't a solved problem because I 
had seen OpenAPI and I knew people were already generating clients and doing all of these things. But when I dug in and I started talking to users and, and understanding kind of what's working and what isn't, it became really clear that, you know, the API world is still sort of back before source control when we were mailing code back and forth and copying our lines manually. And ultimately, I think to to really make this world that we've built scalable and without error, we need a tool like Optic that versions not just code, but also the behavior of that code. So we dug in on that. We spent the better part of a year trying like five different variants. And ultimately, the version we settled on is this thing that's basically like Git, but for API traffic. So how does somebody install and consume Optic? So there's a CLI that you run. So you have to download the CLI. And then basically, every developer who's locally building an API has something that they're sort of running in the command line to start that API. So it might be a Docker up, it might be a node server, it might be Go, whatever, whatever their command line tool is they're using to start their server. All that Optic does is it wraps that in its own little command called API start. So it does exactly what it says it does. It'll start your API, but it'll route all of that traffic through a local instance of Optic. So none of the data ever leaves the machine, but it's comparing basically every request you send to Optic against a spec and giving you these diffs. So you know, just like when you change a file and Git tells you there's now a diff that you have to stage, Optic's basically doing the same thing, but it's giving you options to stage changes to these API specifications. So if you do deprecate a field that's not lost to the consumers, you're able to actually show that in your history as soon as you make the change. What's the feedback that you've gotten around people using Optic? So the teams that have actually been quickest to adopt it have tried other things before. And I think that's what, what's been most encouraging to us. They've all tried doing manual workflows around open API, but either because of the scale of their API, like they had hundreds of endpoints and it was too hard to sort of catch up, or because developers just didn't like the workflow of having to manually update docs, people have fallen off of it. So there's a lot of teams who are really interested in this idea of having governance around their API changes. They're really interested in making sure that every team understands how all these hundreds of internal APIs work and get notified when things change. These are all really important values to them, but there's never been sort of an on-ramp that has made it easy enough for teams to keep an accurate API spec for every single service they offer. So that's been sort of where we've oriented ourselves is just how do we make this, you know, it's romantic, but we say, how do we make this as easy as using Git? Like we really want this to feel, that's something people do every single day. They see code changes, they stage them, they commit them. We really want Optic to feel the same way where if you do make API changes, instead of having to go manually copy that code into someone else's machine, there should just be that magic button that updates the spec. And then all the things that, that change because of that downstream, like you might have a CICD thing that prevents breaking changes based on the optic spec. All that stuff can happen in CICD, but for the developer, we want them to just have this really seamless experience where when they do change the API, they know about it and they can make sure their team knows about it. So when people are using optic, how are the engineers interacting with each other? When are they using optic? How does it actually get used in practice? So every engineer who's building an API you know, will have their own sort of checkout of that API. They're adding a new feature. 
Some features, you know, require you to change the contract of the API. Other features are changing things under the hood and the contract's supposed to stay the same. So in both of those cases, the developers, you know, running the API locally, they're hitting it with some example traffic from test or from Postman or from, you know, a web browser that has a web app that connects to that API. However, they're sort of simulating their traffic while they develop. Optic is tapping that traffic and it understands whether the traffic has changed from what it expected last time. So you just go about your day. You just keep developing, just like you don't think about you know, committing your code to Git until you're ready to share it with others. You don't have to think about what Optic is doing until you're ready to commit your code. And at that point, Optic can tell you, hey, we've observed these new behaviors in your API. For the developer that was trying to change the contract, this is their validation that they've made the changes properly, they're adding it to the spec, and Optic is verifying that that is indeed how the API works. For the developer who was changing stuff and didn't mean to change the API contract and may have introduced a bug by accident, they're also made aware of the fact that they've changed something. They've changed the behavior of the code and of the API without realizing it. And now they can catch that and hopefully revert whatever code changes led to those behavior changes. Very useful. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about how it's actually built. Can you give me an overview of how you built Optic? What is in the stack? We started this out, like I said, we did a lot of experiments. So the diffing engine is written in Scala. There's a node CLI, and that's basically how we start your service and proxy your traffic. And that's all running locally. The big change we're making now over the next couple of weeks is we've actually been porting the diff engine over to Rust because some of the companies using Optic now have, you know, the biggest API responses you've ever seen, and we needed a more performant runtime to actually work through the amounts of data we're seeing. So by the end of the year, it'll be sort of rust with these node CLIs built on top of it. Why do you use Scala? At the time, it was just because we were, you know, experimenting, and you know, it's something I knew really well from previous work I had done. But I'm a big believer in sort of you have your one to learn and your one to throw away. Now that the, the project has been scaling and bigger companies have been adopting it, we need to sort of, this is like the last piece of the system that hasn't really gotten a full rewrite. So it will now. What's the hardest engineering problem you've had to solve in building Optics so far? I think just it's not a, a huge amount of code, but it's taken a lot of time to figure out how to present changes to a user. So I think the early versions we had, if there was a new field, like deeply nested, you know, shipping information, address, zip code, like it would be like shipping information dot address dot zip code changed. And like, it's really, it's really hard for engineers, especially ones that are unfamiliar with the API to like follow long trails of logic like that when it's in text form. So we've probably iterated on the UI around this many, many times to really make it as visual as possible. So when you're within Optic, we show you, you know, the response the server gave you, kind of like what Postman would show you, but we highlight it and say, this is the part that doesn't match. So that's been really hard. And then also these scalability issues, we're still solving them right now, but for these very large APIs with hundreds of distinct fields, the performance has been sort of a sucker. So we've been working hard to improve that over the last couple of weeks. And that's probably our biggest project for the rest of the year to is sort of get this in shape for, for these bigger companies with giant APIs. Are there any other interesting design challenges? Because this is kind of a, a unique application, product design challenges in terms of how you display data to the user. Yeah, well, one of the challenges we had early on was, you know, when you run one of these sessions, 
So let's say you have a, you know, a bunch of requests in Postman and you run them in a certain order. Our initial instinct when we first released the tool at the beginning of last year was just show things in the order that they happen. So for every issue that we, every diff we detect, let's just show that in the order it came in. And that seemed like the most logical way of doing it. And we figured there might be something meaningful about the order you did things, but it required massive context changes. Like when you were looking at, you know, a get request for your shopping cart and then you approve something and then all of a sudden you're looking at a user's profile request and then you hit approve there and then you're back in the shopping cart again. There was a lot of context changes. So, so we had to experiment a lot with kind of the right way in the right order to present the data to you. And then there's also this challenge of telling you what was expected and then telling you what was wrong. Because in Git, you just see what it was before and what it is now, those red lines and those green lines. It's a little harder to tell you what we expected and what we actually saw and figure out the right way to present that to the user. So as the business has grown, how has it changed as you've gotten new customers? Have they fed into you with new feature requests or changes to the system that you have had to implement? Yeah, I'd say there's sort of two ways it's it's affected us. The first is it's added bigger requirements. So our big push over the last two months before we started focusing on performance was accuracy. A lot of teams are trusting this to be the thing that's validating their APIs are working properly. So a small bug in our system might seem low priority in another kind of startup. But for us, like because we are providing a guarantee and a confidence as our main value prop, the bigger and sort of more important these customers are, the higher the impetus on us is to make sure we're always right. So that's led to a big investment we've made in testing. Again, another similar kind of thing where there's more constraints from customers is that these giant API bodies have not performed well inside of our diff engine. So the scale of their APIs are starting to affect the architecture decisions we make. And then the other kind is definitely you know workflows. I feel like every time we we release something new. It's great that there's something new, but then it also comes with a question. So we have pilots right now with Optic running in production environments. And as soon as we started communicating that this was running in real environments and doing the diffing live, that's great because it can supplement a lot of your testing. But then people get the idea, okay, well, since you're looking at how my customers are actually using the API. Can you tell me, you know, which parts of this API can deprecate or which fields are never used anymore? So we're definitely tackling a big problem. And, and sort of the more we release, the more the more asks there are for sort of the imagined capabilities of either the new data or the new workflow that we released. Tell me about some other difficult engineering problems that you've had to solve. Yeah, I think the one that we're kind of most proud of actually is how we represent the API's specification. So one of the challenges I think that all the other API toolmakers have been having for many years is that you have a format like OpenAPI that evolves. And there was you know, Swagger, and then there was OpenAPI, and now there's three or four versions of that. And all of these big companies that have adopted it, every time there's an update, they actually don't want to update because that's a lot of a lot of work for them to sort of update their API spec to match the new version of the API spec. So a lot of people don't want to update. And because of that, tooling vendors have had to support basically, you know, a half dozen versions of open API that all say the same thing slightly differently. And that's a huge engineering burden. So most of the use cases you see around generating SDKs and displaying documentation 
are fairly simple, but then when it comes to doing verification, you know, there's now probably 50 different libraries you can use to verify that your code is is meeting your open API contract and they're all going to verify it slightly differently to a different set of rules from a different time period. So I think one of the things we thought, you know, really early on is if we're not requiring engineers to manually write a file anymore, we can throw out the human readability requirement. And we've actually built a, a spec that looks a lot like CQRS event streams. So every time that someone adds a field, there's not you know an updated nested JSON structure. There's just a new row that says field, this was added to parent ID, this object. And what sort of naturally has come out of that, and we hadn't fully reckoned with this when we, when we made that engineering decision to build sort of a event-driven spec, was that a lot of the questions that you want to answer with your API specifications come down to how something has changed over time. And what's cool is in our spec, you can sort of adjust the offset and see, you know, what has changed this month or what has changed since last release or since, you know, the beginning of time. In any other sort of specification, there's not really good open API differs that can diff two open API specs to each other because there are all of these different versions, all this history, all this legacy. So a lot of the the decisions we made to sort of build our own internal spec that then exports to open API. At the time it was just making our lives easier, but now almost all of the important next features people are asking us for have to do with this time axis and how the APIs are changing over time. And I think we haven't fully explored beyond like a change log, what those features look like, but it's really clear that there's a lot of cool stuff we're gonna be able to do because of that architecture that will be more challenging for traditional architectures. Do you think there's any issue with overburdening developers with new tools? I feel like there's so many new developer tools, you just kind of become overwhelmed with the volume of things. It makes you wish for the days of just having a an IDE and a command line. Do you really need all these other tools? It's a good question. I think it's one we should we should always be asking as a community, like what are we making easier? What are we making harder? And I think if a developer tool author only answers the what are we making easier question, then I think that there's definitely something missing that you should inquire further about because that what are you making harder is important. And I think, you know, backing up even more, like, you know, we have, we broke up these monoliths into microservices and we traded one kind of complexity for another. So I think there's always this trade-off happening. Ultimately, I look for sort of where, where the most value is for a team. You know, developers want to be able to just work on new features. They want to be able to build things independently and asynchronously. And at the same time, they don't want to be broken by their peers. And I think, you know, for, for us, that's sort of been our thesis is how do we make the safety that sort of all businesses are looking for something that is just sort of a drop-in automatic thing that doesn't require a huge behavior change. I mean, literally, you just have to start using our command line, you know, API start command, instead of whatever your current start command is. And when you commit your code, if there's an API diff, you have to review it. So we've tried to make it as as easy as possible to sort of get the benefits without the trade-off, which is, hey, like now for six hours a week, you have to write open API specs or review PRs of people changing the open API spec or write tests to verify the open API spec. So we're, we're really trying to sort of figure out how do you create that new tool and provide that value without the workflow being something that's onerous. Got it. Well, what are the biggest problems that you see in front of you to solve? 
I think for us, you know, now that we've we've built the open source version and gotten a, a decent amount of adoption around it, working on sort of what this looks like in a larger company environment. We've been fortunate to pilot with some pretty large companies, but we're we're still in sort of a subset of those companies' teams. So figuring out what this kind of looks like at scale in a company, how is Optic the tool that's making sure teams aren't breaking each other, you know, that's notifying one team when another team is proposing certain changes that will affect them, and really scaling this up to being something that's part of the decision-making process. There's not as many technical challenges in doing that. That's much more sort of a, a human challenge, a workflow challenge. And, and again, to your, your earlier point, which I think was a good question, is like, how do, you, how do you add these capabilities without it becoming sort of just one more workflow to do? So I think we're going to be iterating a lot on that part of the product and trying to scale the success we've seen with Optic being the tool that just makes maintaining and writing API specs easy into Optic being the tool that gives us a lot of safety across our entire company that you know we're, we're not breaking each other, we're collaborating well, and everyone is sort of aware of how these things work. And it's not just living in one engineer's brain how one system is supposed to work with another. From the business point of view, how do you see expansion into other adjacencies? Yeah, so this is something that is sort of at the core of of our thesis. I think that when you look at sort of the primitives in developer tools, kind of everything, you know, steps up from from version control. Like that those primitives are used in CI systems, they're used in build systems, they're used in infrastructure world. And I think we've started to sort of treat source control as sort of the BLN doll where we do all of our versioning. And I think ultimately in this hyper-connected world where most of your dependencies now live outside of your company, not inside your company, it's really important to not just version the code, but to also version the behavior of the code. So why is it that you know, we're, we're versioning, you know, entire node modules and not individual functions inside of them. Why is it that we're versioning entire APIs and not specific endpoints? Like, I think when you break down this problem and you start basically creating snapshots of how everything in your system is supposed to work, those snapshots will, will change, of course. Things will evolve over time. But I think it's, it's just as important. Like imagine if in GitHub on the left you had the code that changed and on the right there was a little summary telling you what the behavior changes are. The contract is different. There's this new side effect. We ultimately sort of see ourselves, you know, the name Optic, all about vision, is we want to give people sort of observability into how all these pieces in this complex world fit together and hopefully not do it in a way that requires you to manually write specs and write documentation. We think those things should be side effects of the system monitoring how things are working today, not things that you have to provide for and then update later. Well, are there any other business opportunities that you see coming down the line aside from those? Yeah. I mean, I think applying these principles generally is sort of the biggest opportunity we're looking at is how do you how do you make the version control primitive based off of the behavior of a system, not based off of the code. And I think once you have this map, like like one of the cool side effects of of companies that have adopted Optic across the whole organization is now they know how every single API works. 
And there's other classes of tools that want to know how all your APIs work. No-code tools, you know, and the Airtable, Zapiers of the world. So why aren't you able to log in with something like Optic, grant access to how your APIs work? Now you can use all that data inside of those tools. And when those change, Optic can webhook to them and say, hey, this API, this internal API you were using for this marketing task is now different. You might need to ask the next user to log in to update the formula. So to me, there's like, there's this whole next level of, of sort of connecting all of these low-code, no-code, and alternative programming environments together. Once Optic is sort of this layer that's keeping an up-to-date understanding of how all these systems behave. And that's sort of how we get round, round trip back to the original vision of Optic when I first started this uh, two years ago. That's really exciting, the whole idea of being able to stitch together no-code platforms, because this is one of the emergent frictions in the no-code world. It feels like we're moving towards an age where instead of having like Linux versus Windows, you have like a hundred different Windows style walled garden environments of no-code tools where you'd love to get them interacting with each other pleasurably, but it's sort of tricky too, I think. Yeah. So my lineage is I actually founded DropSource, which is one of the the bigger low-code tools a couple of years ago for mobile apps. And we had this point of friction where we were deciding whether we would build our own backend as a service walled garden or if we would import, it was Swagger back then, to let you drag and drop UI elements that would connect to those services. And yeah, like this is a problem that I think is across that whole space. And when you look at Airtable and Retool's websites, they have like their own page for defining your API, sort of like an API spec where you can say, hey, here's how this one request works. Here's what it'll send back. And yeah, all of that data that connects these tools together is really behavior data. It's, it's understanding how a system is supposed to behave. And right now, yeah, I think when humans have to maintain behavior data themselves, they just don't do it because it's a lot of work. And, you know, we don't ask people to manually merge Git commits anymore. We made tooling for it. And I think ultimately, because of how interconnected things are, you're going to need tooling to maintain accurate understandings of how all these different systems work so they can connect together. While I have you, any other reflections on the no-code space? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately the reason why I started building tooling that works with legacy code is because I think the low code space generally has like an interesting curve to it. Like you can start off either trying to work with like startups that are creating applications and then you're taking bets on whether or not those things work or not. And if they do work, they'll probably turn off at some point because they'll need a feature you don't support. So it's like a temporary path. And then if you work with big companies, you're only going to get their greenfield projects because their real app that's their primary business is never going to get ported onto a low-code tool. So you'll get the experimental web UI for a new banking product. And then at some point, that matures to the point where they turn off the platform. So I think like you want to build a developer tool that's free to start and then can become more expensive for the user as they scale it to more and more users. That's what makes, you know, infrastructure as a service, you know, a business model where they can give away so much upfront because they're they're betting on the fact that that many fish will scale. And I think low code has this constant issue where it never does enough or connects to enough integrations to work forever. So you it's hard to like see what that middle term and long term revenue 
goal can actually be, unless nothing. Like I don't know a, a solution to that problem, other than like having low code tools that do one very specific part of a workflow and can be just own that one part of of how you work, but not have to sort of absorb all of your requirements. Indeed. Yeah, well, that, that's a really interesting reflection. You got any thoughts on on the future of developer tools or, you know, low code tools or the intersection therein? Yeah, I think it's hard for me not to see things through the lens of our of our thesis, but I really believe that low code tools are gonna end up being things like projectional editors. So, you know, maybe I write a React component. And I'm a developer and I add a lot of different affordances to it. And maybe I do everything but the render method. Like I have all the updaters, I have all the internal state management. And then to me, what would be really interesting if a designer could go into a visual tool and use those affordances that I wrote as their primitives when they're building out that one little piece of the UI, hit save. And then like now I have this beautiful component that I didn't have to write. The designer gets to do the part they're good at. I get to do the part that I'm good at. And if I update the code in a way that's incompatible with what the designer did, the designer gets notified and they have to fix it. And like, to me, that's like not super ambitious. It's not trying to own an entire space. It's not trying to own the entire app's life cycle. It's just saying like, what's this one area where we can let a non-programmer contribute to our larger application? And I'm hopeful that tools like Optic that create these bridges between sort of code, the behavior of that code, and whatever tool wants to sort of consume that information, I'm hopeful that that sort of creates this world where low code just becomes projectional editors. And there can be like a really, really good one that you subscribe to and pay real money for that you scale with your business. Because if it only has to do one part of the job really well, and there's good escape hatches, you could build a business around that and and have people paying for for years, for decades. So I think finding a way to sort of let people contribute in certain parts is like the biggest opportunity. Another example of that is, you know, my dad in his role, he defines requirements for a lot of programmers. So he gives them giant Excel spreadsheets with formulas in it. And then they try to turn those formulas into code and they get it right, you know, six times out of 10 on the first shot. And then like by number five or six, they get it right. But sometimes they don't. And it costs huge amounts of money when it goes wrong in the real world. So why can't someone build sort of a formula business logic editor that people like my dad can use that generate code that then the developer, when they're running their validation or building their transaction object, can rely on sort of opaquely just know that that is managed by someone who knows what they're doing and then keep on writing code normally. Like I think those sorts of seams are really, to me, where where low code is going to end up going. That seems like a good place to stop. Aiden, thank you for giving me your reflections on the future as well as your your perspective on the status quo of Optic. It's, it's all very exciting. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff. 